with a track called Big Mouth Strikes again from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another epic slice of life as I bring you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. As always, I'll be crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop. And this week's special guest is going to be Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus. Yes, those post-punk goth rockers all the way from Northampton, though this interview was conducted all the way in LA. So expect quality chat, quality music and much, much more. But to get the party started, I thought we should play a track by Bauhaus, or the Bauhaus, as Stuart Lee would probably call them. This is She's In Party. Yeah. 
the cure with a track called let's go to bed that came from the album probably the the greatest hits no staring at the sea or japanese whispers and i do believe that this year the meltdown festival is being curated by the one and only robert smith and before that we had this week's special guest this is bauhaus and the track called she's in parties because i caught up with drummer Kevin Haskins very recently. So I'll be bringing that interview very, um, very soon. And also a part of the interview was to do with the new book that he's put together, which is titled Bauhaus Undead, Visual History and Legacy. So we'll be talking about the band and also about the creative process of putting together that particular publication. But because I've got quite a bit of the interview and not a lot of time, I think we should play another track by Bauhaus. This is their version of Ziggy Stardust.
rock and roll. There you go. There you go. That's Bauhaus and their version of Ziggy Stardust. That came from their 1982 album, The Sky's Gone Out. Hello, this is David Eastall on The C86 Show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop and a bit of goth as well. This week's special guest is Kevin Haskins, because I caught up with the drummer from Bauhaus to find out more about love, life and poetry and all that groovy stuff. He went on to form Love and Rockets and is now in a band called Pop Tone, but has just brought out a book, a hardback, called... called Bauhaus, Undead, The Visual History and Legacy. Anyway, this is the first part of my interview with Kevin when I ask him that exciting question, yes, you've guessed it, about the beginning and the origins of the band. Kevin, take it away. Daniel, David and myself, we had been in previous bands. Um, One was called The Craze and one was called Jack Plug and the Sockets. And my brother and I were also in a punk band called The Submerged Temp. So we'd, and bands before that. So we'd We'd kind of been working together, and um, Dan, it was Daniel's idea to start Bauhaus, and he he approached Peter Murphy, who he was at high school with, and I don't think he'd seen him for a couple of years, and he just thought, he looks great. Had no idea if he could sing or not. Had no idea. But they were both into Bowie at school, and he looked great. So he went out his house and played him some music of the, one of the bands I mentioned that we were in at the time, which Danny wasn't really happy in it. He, it wasn't really his thing. So Peter heard this music that Danny was doing with me and David and I think this guy, Dave Exton. And uh, he was like, this is great. And so Danny said, do you want to start a band with me? And he's like, yeah. So then Danny called me about a week later and told me, I've started this band with this guy, you know, Peter. And so anyway, so we, and then that, Danny didn't want David involved because he, he's like, he's too opinionated. He's you know, two strong ideas. And in the end, I, I, you know, kept on to Danny. Let's get David in. He's, he's the, you know, the final piece of the jigsaw. So David eventually joined. And with Bola Lugosi's Dead, which is probably our most, you know, famous uh, single or piece of music. Um, we actually, the first time David came to rehearsal, he brought the lyrics with him. And Danny had been working on this kind of haunting guitar uh, progression and we just started playing and I, I thought what can I play to this and um, I, I'd learned three beats from a drum teacher one was a pop beat one was a jazz beat and one was the bossa nova and I thought I'll try the bossa nova <laughs> which is the beat you know it's like so I just started playing that and it that song literally happened pretty much as you hear it on the record instantly the first time we played it together mm. and it was magical it was a magical moment and we all knew wow this is amazing this is something really special so in to, to try and answer your question it, it it was very organic and very it just we just let it happen you know and um we were in northampton it was you know those times were a little bit bleak and uh like they've the name of our first LP in the flat field was was kind of reflecting, you know, yes. you know, the flat landscape in Northampton, and there really was nothing much to do, and that, and uh, you know, because most so it was it, it sorry. I was going to say, because most bands sort of take a few years or time to get a sound, but you sound like that came together incredibly what quickly, you know, that, that first yeah. single, which was obviously your most famous one, because I talked to a few people like, 
you know, I've done quite a lot of these shows and sort of people like, I don't know, Fast Eddie from Motorhead, it, you know, it, it took them a long time before they were, they eventually got a sound that they thought, actually, this is, we're going somewhere. Whereas with you and your, your lineup, it sounded like it came together incredibly well. It did. Yes, it, <clears throat> it did. It was, we didn't really, you know, like I saying, we didn't really think about, okay, we'll do this and we'll do that. It just, very much the music would just happen. Um, and I do remember I was, you know, people said, oh, you should move to London. And we thought, well, we don't want to become part of a scene because it might influence us to sound differently. And, and I, I also remember not listening, trying not to listen to the radio too much because I was scared <laughs> that I would be influenced by other bands around the time and it would spoil the sound. And, which is kind of funny thinking back. I don't think that would have happened. But uh, it was, you know, it just happened very naturally. Yes. Because uh... <clears throat> the other thing I've noticed, and, and it's kind of one of those quite interesting ones, is that most bands, you know, have that five-year arc, you know, where they get together, especially that period. They do a single, it goes quite well. They get a John Peel session, that goes really well. They do the album, the tour, and then things get a bit tricky, whereas you actually managed to pack quite a lot into those five years. But... It was it was a five year journey for the you know stage one of the band, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. And, um, but you you produced an awful lot of you know you got, you produced a lot of albums and also you had such a distinct image as well, didn't you? Yeah, I mean that was one conscious decision we made was to wear black, um, and we 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 always we've always recognised how important lighting is, you know. Yeah, to, to this day and um uh it was actually Danny's father's accountant Graham Bentley and when he, he was around doing his dad's accounts Graham was and he would ask Danny hey, what are you up to because Graham was really into music and he told him about the band and I can't remember how it happened but we he became our lighting designer and we started off we just bought these huge um lamps that were from a factory they were, they were massive, you know, that would be hanging from the factory ceiling. And uh, we, I don't know where we got those from, but we got about four or five of them. And we just would lay them on the ground, on the floor of the stage, wherever we're playing. And that would be our lighting. So it was very kind of film noir-ish and yes. um, very stark. We, you know, we were very, we did, you know, we would, we would try and keep things simple. And so that, that might've been another little kind of, decision we made like to keep things stark and stripped down not embellished and you know we we, <clears throat> we had all been in bands and seen local bands where we would call them musos where these guys would spend you know years and years like shredding and practicing scales and uh actually all of us were not we were kind of non-musicians we <laughs> i think we were all of us were probably too lazy to to bother to do that so we were kind of limited to a degree and um, we just use that to our benefit. And that's my first part of the interview with Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus. And like I said, he is currently just about to publish a new book about Bauhaus called Undead, the visual history and legacy. Anyway, this is David Easter on the C86 show a bit later on. I will tell you how you can contact me, but to keep the party rolling, I think we should play another song. This is from the album In the Flat Field. This is Dark Entry, which is, um, yes, the opening track on side one. Check it out.
Called Dark Entries from the album In the Flatfield by Powerhouse. This is David East on the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show and I will be there. And I usually reply in about 24, 24 seconds. No, 24 hours. It's always nice to get your messages. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Kevin from the band. When I ask him about the tricky bit and how you keep that creative dynamic together, which in this case sounds like a bit of a difficult order. So, Kevin, just Tell us how it all developed. Um, well, it had always been volatile. There was, you know, D- Danny, David and Peter, have, you know, pretty strong egos. And and I, I'd be kind of like in the, the guy in the middle of all of them trying to keep the peace. You know, they had their opinions and their egos and, you know, we should do it this way. And like, so there, there was a lot of friction. And I, you know, I, I, I do think that helps form the sound of, of bands you know because you know it's you know it's kind of a cliche isn't it that you know what can you think of one band that where they don't fight you know I, yes. maybe there's exceptions but um, so um it was kind of on the cards and it that kind of tension and friction was building over the years you know and um it actually came as a big surprise to me though personally when um, I can't remember, some one of the band members said, "I don't want to carry on. Let's have a meeting." <clears throat> and we met met in this somebody's house for some reason. Maybe it's neutral territory. <laughs> and uh, and then you know all the other members said, "Well, I don't want to carry on either." And I was thinking, "Well, I want to carry on." <laughs> I'm really, you know, it was like. This meant everything to me, this band, you know, and it was my dream, <clears throat> you know, ever from since I think seeing Bowie on doing Starman on Top of the Pops, I think for all the punk and post-punk bands, that that one performance, that one moment, those three minutes, I, I think inspired all of us, 
and thought we're like what the hell is this this is amazing you know like this is this androgynous space creature writing these amazing songs and and you you know your mum and dad like saying what does he look like what does he, he should get his hair cut you know like yeah so you you like him even more when your parents you know don't get it you know so um yeah so going yeah so i was just like i can't this can't end you know this is what am i going to do but it you know but it did end and um i've been very blessed you know to still be doing this <laughs> Yes. So, <laughs> you know. so there was a definite moment. And then obviously there was that period of time when you, you weren't part of, you know, Bauhaus and it didn't exist. So what was it like when it slightly, you know, it came back together again, sort of 10 years, not 10 years later, but in 98? Um, I, I had reservations because I, I was a little, it's funny to say this now, because it was 20 years ago, but 20 years ago, I was scared that we might be a bit too old. And I was scared of us ruining our legacy. And like, can we, you know, it's going to be different. It's There's that kind of crazy angst and passion. And uh, no, the passion is still there, but that energy of, you know, being that age, you know, it's going to be different. But um, I think we did, well, to me, it was a great success. Um, you know, it was, I mean, Peter was a little little bit more reserved, although he still <clears throat> would run around dance on the stage a lot. I mean, he's a great front man. He's like, you know, I was talking to a friend last night, how, what a voice he has and what a great front man he is, you know. Um, but anyway, I think we pulled it off and we, we actually could play way better than we did before. Mm. And I also took the trouble of getting the master tapes run like running off all these samples that I would trigger live um which is something that is something that I um got into with Love and Rockets and so I thought I'd apply that and it would you know I with me it what we were doing then it's very much a kind of nostalgia thing for people of our own age you know contemporaries and then for young kids it's which we did attract young kids and we were really happy about that and to them it's just like you know they're going to see that house for the first time and anyway I, I wanted I thought people want to come along and hear the music as they know it on the records and so I thought let's just get as close to that as we can because I know that's what I want to do if I go and see a you know a band from back in the day I, I don't want to hear different versions or when people try and contemporize things and put trip hop beats in and yes. <laughs> like, you know, it's gotta be, you know, so I think we pulled that off really well. And I think it was a huge success. And that's the second part of my interview with Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus. I've still got a few more bits of that. But anyway, to break it up, I thought we should play another track. This is from the album, The Sky's Gone Out. And the track is all we ever wanted was everything. Take it away. Everything All 
we ever got was cold Get up, eat jelly Sandwich bars and barbed wire Squash every week into a day with a track called All We Ever Wanted Was Everything from the album The Sky's Gone Out. Hello, this is David Easter on the C86 Show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop. This is the third part of my interview that I had with Kevin from the band, where I talk about uh, their dynamic amongst them. That's uh, what it's like at the moment, and um, are they still in touch? We keep in touch, not to a great degree. I mean, I, um, I'm obviously uh, keep in touch with Danny a lot more because we're in a band right now. Um, which, if viewers, listeners don't know, we're, we're doing this project called Pop Tone, and um, it's it's termed as a career retrospective. So we're, we're playing music from Bauhaus, Turns on Tail, and Love and Rockets, and um, we started that a year ago. Yes, and uh, we've, you know, we, what what we wanted to do though was not go on these long tours because we. We just can't deal with that anymore. <laughs> and so uh, we were kind of experimenting as well, like how, you know, how long, how, you know, how long can we go out for and keep our sanity? And so anyway, what we found was to go out and do a maximum for like 10 shows, which would take 
a week and a half, maybe two weeks, and then go home and have a break for at least three weeks. And so that's what we did last year. I mean, it took us, you know, uh, three quarters of the, the year to to tour North America in that way, you know. Um, and that's what we've been doing. Um, we're hoping to bring it to the UK. Um, we just, <clears throat> one difficulty we've found is people don't know who Pop-Tone is. Uh, and people who do have kind of an inkling, they think we're a tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this kind of feedback. So it's been very, very difficult educating our fans and getting word out uh, as to who we are and what we're doing, you know. Yes. Um, so, uh, but we wanted to have a band name rather than, you know, Kevin Haskins and Daniel Ash from, you know, and all these bands. But we we have been kind of using band logos and band names in advertising now because we really we realize you know you really got to be very blatant and about what we're doing you know yes well quite and what would you because obviously it's quite impressive that you're you're still in a band most people you know and you've continued music all the time haven't you as well which most people which well done this kind of show i mean a lot of people have had that five-year if they're lucky, 10 years, but normally five years, then they sort of literally have had a decade or two off and then they've tentatively started getting back and doing a bit of music. And 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 they sort of... The thing about touring, it always comes up that, you know, it's amazingly exhausting. Yeah, it's true. And I, when I talk about this, sometimes I get the impression people might think, oh, you know, spoil, poor, poor spoiled rock stars, like, you know. But um, it is incredibly tedious and... When we were, like, you know, we had a lot of success in North America with Love and Rockets, and we were playing really big amphitheaters, and and um, we there was a lot of pressure for us to tour longer and keep touring, and it actually split us up for, like, two or three years. And I remember on that tour, it just, it, it, it just plays with your mind in, in such a weird way that you'd be checking into hotels, you literally wouldn't know what day it was. And um, and in one hotel, if you use a chain of hotels, that you'd feel like you're in the same room, but you're not. And you wouldn't know sometimes which city you're in. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Um, and you'd have a tour manager just, you know, waking you up and getting you in car or getting you on the plane. And so you don't really have to think that much. So you kind of become this weird, kind of in this zombie state, you know. Um, and it just plays with your head, and I, I can, you know, understand why bands would destroy hotel rooms. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it does send you a little bit insane. So, yeah, but we've actually been really enjoying touring in this way, where you just go out and do a handful of shows and have a break, and it's fun. And I, my daughter, uh, we auditioned a couple of bass players, and my daughter. Got the job of playing bass. Her name's Diva. She's my oldest daughter. So that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And that's the third part of my interview with Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus and talking about life with other bands, Love and Rockets and also Pop Tones. I'm aware time is ticking on. So I'm going to play um, the fourth part, which is quite a short bit, then a song, then a few more bits of the interview. This is when I ask him what he would do, say to his 18-year-old self. I think the only thing I'd probably regret is... Um, to be honest, like take you know, 
getting involved in drugs um, on the road. And I think that's, you know, it kind of ties in what we, we were just talking about to, um, cause you just, you know, also you, you know, you're doing these big shows, you come off stage and your adrenaline is just, you know, you want that, keep that feeling going. So I think that that's why a lot of bands fall into doing drugs and stuff. And it, it was never like a huge problem, but now I really enjoy when I visit a city, you know, I can get up in the morning and go and walk around and uh, visit, you know, we were in Guadalajara a couple of weeks ago and I'd, I'd go out with Dave and we visited a, an amazing um, church and um, these Mayan ruins and then had a little snack in a cafe. And, and you know, normally I'd be sleeping off a hangover, you know, if that was like 40 years ago. You know? Yes. So that's, that's the one thing I'd say, Kevin, try and, you know, don't get too involved in the drugs and partying and you know kind of enjoy you know places you're going more you know yeah. but I think aside from that I've, I've had a really blessed career and um I feel extremely extremely fortunate and 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 it's still going you know wise words indeed I hope you're paying attention and making notes because I will test you at the end of the show just to uh, just check that up. But anyway, look, there's still quite a bit more of the interview and I was going to play another track, but instead I want to play another section where I ask Kevin a little bit about the wonderful world that is record labels publishing and all that wonderful admin stuff. Kevin, explain how the record label world worked. Not really. <laughs> uh, well, in a way... I mean, we were really naive, extremely naive, and very eager. And when we were offered, well, the, the first single, Bella to go see, Pete Stennett, Small Wonder Records, lovely guy, and we're still in touch. And I sent him a copy of the book because yeah, I wrote a whole piece about Small Wonder and um, in the book. And um, he did a great deal. He's just a 50-50 deal, and he he was really into the music and the artist, and so that was great. But then he, you know, we wanted to stay with him. And he said, I, I think you guys are going to be, get too big for my resources. You need you need to go to a bigger label. So we ended up on 4AD, which was a, you know, a subsidiary of Beggar's Banquet. Um, and at that point, we signed everything away uh, forever. <laughs> we just, it was, we went to a musician's union lawyer who, wasn't very good at all and we we didn't realize what we were doing and but we were offered you know you know oh god we can sign off the doll and we're going to get like it was like um 40 pounds each a week or a month whatever it was it was a fortune to us Mm. it was like oh my god we're gonna have a proper record deal we couldn't believe it you know just couldn't believe like this is it's happening finally so we're so excited and we just didn't really know or take too much trouble in the uh, business side of things and we we'd still have a we still get royalties though you know we have a cut of of all those you know if records still sell or get licensed you know but we actually re- retained ownership of bella lagos's dead <clears throat> um i won't go into details why but we did <laughs> and uh it was something that you know I can't, I don't, yeah, I don't really want to go into it publicly, but um, it was nothing to do with, with Pete, small wonder, but we, we got ownership back. So that's the only thing we own. And it's really lovely to have one thing 
and and such a, a benchmark piece of our career, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's lovely to own that. But that's all we. Yeah, and then you know, as years went on, as you get older, you get more interested, and you kind of learn more. Yes, the joy of record labels and record deals and publishing and all that groovy stuff. Anyway, this is David Easton on the C86 Show. And now my final part of the interview with Kevin, where we talk about the publication of this new book that he's just brought out. That's just, uh, I think, available now from all good bookshops and probably from the internet. So yes, Kevin, take it away. Explain that three-year process of uh, bringing this book into fruition. A friend of mine, Matt Green, uh, who works at Cleopatra Records, he suggested that I do a coffee table book. I think it was like three years ago, around this time, three years ago. And uh, I, I had no thoughts before about doing anything like that. Um, he knew that I had a big container, huge con- plastic container in my basement full of memorabilia and stuff I'd collected. And so I, I, I thought it was a great idea and I was excited. So he, he his uh, company actually made me an offer, but I just felt for the amount of work and effort and value that I'd put in the book, I thought it was, it was too low. So he said, Kevin, you know, we're good friends, you have my blessings. I said, yeah, I just want to self-publish. And he's like, yeah, great, good luck. So off I went on this journey and um, I ran in, <clears throat> I kept running into this guy called Jeff Anderson at shows and um, we kind of hit it off and uh, probably on our third or fourth meeting at gigs, I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I I do all these box sets and books. And and he said, yeah, and he, he's, he's, this guy has a lot of kind of enthusiasm and um, he's a big character, you know, and uh, a lot of energy and very, you know, excitable. And he said, yeah, you should come around and see my stuff. And I went, went around and it was amazing. It was, uh, he's done work for Beck and, Roger Waters and Fleetwood Mac, Nine Inch Nails, Sigur Ross, um, and this beautiful box set. Yes. Uh, and I, I said, Jeff, like, we've got to work together. I just love this stuff. And he was like, I'm so excited. It's Bauhaus, man. It's Bauhaus, you know. So um, <clears throat> so we formed, like, a, a team, and and he brought in some designers, uh, Donnie and Kaylee Carrington, these lovely people, very talented uh, so they did the layout and archiving all my stuff. And um, and then Jeff and I just really got invested in the whole artistic side and just, yeah, we're going to, I want, I said, I want a really big book. Like it would be like 21 inches by 13 inches with a, you know, slip cover. And we, we just really got carried away on that side of things and didn't really put a lot of attention into the business side of things. Um for example, figuring out how much it would cost to ship a book that size and that weight. You know? <laughs> so uh, I tell you, I've I've learned so much. I know everything about publishing, about shipping, about fulfillment centers, about books. <laughs> so anyway, we went off and designed the book, and um, that took you know quite a long time. And I started writing stories, and it was kind of I, I thought, well, I, I won't be able to remember anything. But when you start writing, things come back to you. So yeah. I really enjoyed that process as well. It was a very enjoyable part. And I I referenced um, at the time, I think, Johnny Lydon's 
book and Peter Hook's book and and I just noticed how they spoke in their language you know it wasn't there wasn't any pretense and I thought well that's the way because I was just learning how to do all this on my own you know yes quite so that's that's the way to do this you know it's like just don't try and you know be kind of grandiose with words and use vocabulary that you don't normally use you know just be real and um so that that kind of I felt that worked just I I did come across the idea one day of of starting some of the stories in an in a kind of a little bit of an oblique way to kind of draw the listener in or the reader in um and then go into the kind of the story so that was I don't know where I got that from but I I used that yes. uh, concept a few times um so anyway, on we go. So uh, I started doing, you know, about a few months before we were going to put it on pre-sale because I didn't have any money to make the book. It cost a lot of money, especially this big book. And um, so I was doing a pre-sale. So I needed to get orders for the book. And when I, when I had enough money in the bank, then I could go and get it made and fulfill those orders. And a few months before that date, I started social media work and I got a publicist and and it wasn't until a few weeks or a week couple of weeks before the sale I, I got with Jeff and I said okay well um you know what are we going to price this at and started to look at the business side and it was it was then that we realized oh my god this is going to cost a fortune to make it's going to cost a fortune what you know um but we you know I'd been advertising all aspects of it so it was too late, you know. So I was just like, you know, just hope that we get those sales. And um, it, it went on sale on this specific, I think maybe it was Halloween a couple of years ago. And um, looking on my website, uh, um, the way, you know, the part that generates the money. And I wasn't seeing any orders coming in. And I was, you know, you have to do, do, do a lot of, you know, if typically you have to get a lot of orders the first couple of days, you know. Mm. and um there were no orders and i called up i think it was wix uh the website builder i was using and they said oh we're really sorry our servers have gone just gone down today and i just i was yelling at this guy saying no you, you can't do this to me i just i've been working on this book for two years i've just launched it today you can't when are they going to be back up and he's like uh it typically takes about six or eight hours i'm like no this is no you can't <laughs> I was just, it was devastating. And then they finally came, they were working probably about five hours later and then I started to get orders coming. My God. But I could have lost quite a lot of people, you know? Yes. And anyway, long story short, I didn't get enough orders. I, I actually, I, I've spoken to publishers since and they were very impressed. When you look at the, the, the cost and the size of the book, they were very impressed that I got that many orders. But I didn't get enough to get it made so I had to reimburse everybody and I had a mini meltdown and I was devastated and I was just like oh it's just you know the whole thing's failed so plan b went to approach publishers but this time I wanted you know good distribution and it to be able to be put on Amazon and, and most of the people who are interested were in the UK and selling from their websites and I'm like I can't because most of our two-thirds of our Bauhaus audience were in North America. It's just a fact. Yeah. And so there's the bigger market. So I'm thinking, well, really, I need 
to have the publisher based there or have you know distribution in in uh, North America and I came close and then this was over like a four five month period and in the end I was back to square one I couldn't find a publisher so I was going out to the show and with my friend Matt who I mentioned right from the I'm sorry this no that's this fine answer isn't too long but I, I'm almost finished so I was um, you know we'd go and see shows and I'll typically go around to his house and we have a couple of drinks before we leave and catch up and um and he said Kevin look at this book we're just putting out on I think it was Hanoi Rocks or something and I was like oh that's great yeah and he was showing me the book he said yeah we did a really good deal with them for them and I won't mention what it was but it and I I was like wow that's great and then I was like Matt do you do you think you could do the same deal for me and he said Kevin I think we could (laughs) so I you know I ended up where we start you know where I started I I did get a better deal but, you know, it was this crazy journey I went on for like two years. And that's the final part of my interview with Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus, also in Love and Rockets and also currently in Pop Tone. Um, yes. So like I said uh, during that and as he was just talking, there is a new book out that he's put together, which does look absolutely fantastic. Um, so a big thank you and thank you for listening. I'll leave you with a bit more music. This is going to be The Passion of Lovers. Thank you. Have a great week and tune in for next week because I'll have another special guest. There you go. Check me out. Shut
Yeah.